Welcome to The Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar race. I'm your host, Jensen Tucker-Bankard, and I'm here with two members of House Long Take. There is no call we do not answer, no faith that we betray. First, he'd like to talk to you about Desert Power. It's P.T. McNiff. How's it going, P.T.? I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. I'm doing well, Jen. How are you? <laughs> First of all, a classic. Can't fault you for that. Had to uh, do it. Also, I, did, I didn't remember it was that long. <laughs> Not yeah, lie. It could have just been the opening part, but I like all the way through Only I Will yeah, Remain. That was good. And he can hook you up with a sandworm bucket at AMC Theaters. It's Greg Cass. How's it going, Greg? <laughs> wow. I'm good, Jen. How are you doing? We, we, we take your water, Greg, and the spirit in which it was given. That was incredible. Um, so... Hello, listeners. Th- those were all <laughs> those were all references to Denis Villeneuve's 2021 hit Dune, or as we discovered when the screen came on, Dune Part One, uh, which cleaned up at the Oscars that year with six Academy Awards. We are all hotly anticipating Dune Part Two, which arrives in theaters this weekend. We literally, before we I hit record, we were just talking about when when we were all going to go see it. So this is our celebration of all things Dune, Dune Part One, the Dune franchise more generally. Uh, in order to get us hyped up for Dune Part 2. So, you know, I wanted to go over sort of what how spoilers are going to work on this episode. Our normal reviews usually start with a spoiler-free section and then shift into spoiler mode for the rest of the show. We are still going to do that, but today we're going to keep that spoiler-free section pretty short because we're assuming that if you're here listening to us, it's because you want to nerd out about Dune. We will, however, avoid spoilers from parts of uh, Frank Herbert's novel. So basically, we won't we won't spoil events that are probably going to be in Dune Part Two. So if you want to go into Dune Part Two fresh, you haven't read the book, you don't, you haven't watched the Sting movie, right? Like the sorry, the David Lynch movie that was egregious. I don't know why. So then, um, I support apologies it. to David Lynch. <laughs> I mean, that's how most people think of it. Anyway, uh, we'll get to it. Uh, so yeah. You, you, that's, that's what we're going to do with spoilers. So you have been warned PT. If listeners think we're the quiz Hederach after listening to this episode, what can they do? If people don't want to miss uh, new episodes when they drop, they can follow the long take review wherever they get their podcast. We host the feed on Jen's Substack at the long but you can also find us on Spotify, Apple podcasts, overcast, uh, Google podcasts, YouTube, uh, we're, we're everywhere now. Uh, you can also, uh, follow us on Instagram and threads at the long take review. If, uh, you want to get your updates via social media. Thanks PT. So I think for our format, we're going to keep some things from our normal reviews, but kind of switch it up, uh, in, in other parts. So we're going to start with a short take. We're going to go into spoiler mode after that, and then sort of give some just broader context of the Dune franchise. I feel like I'm giving a PowerPoint presentation. This is the first slide. Uh, so maybe this was a bad idea. But <laughs> um, kind of generally talk about, you know, the phenomenon that was Dune Part 1. And then, you know, because I want to tease this so you can stick around for it later. We are going to give our top 
three things that we all love about Dune. Uh, and so, so that's, and then we'll end with, with some Oscars talk of the normal Oscars watch, um, but more retrospective. So, so that's kind of what, what we're all about for this episode. So I want to start with a short take, you know, because this is kind of like a walk down memory lane for Dune part one in some ways, you know, any memories from the experience of seeing Dune part one in, I assume in theaters uh, and, you know, and then give us your short take of like, what, are, what is your relationship to Dune? Uh, well, I'll I'll just start by saying that I share my memories of the 2021 uh, Dune because uh, I watched it with you, Jen, uh, when when we were still sort of in that that weird pandemic zone. It was like I think there had been like some some vaccines had come out, but there was new waves that were happening. Theaters were not always fully open, uh, and uh, Jen was put, taking it upon herself uh and w- with with some of her friends uh down in the part of uh the part of our our region where she lives to like do the rental of a theater f- to watch a new movie and uh i think that was a they they had discounted it a little bit so it was like a reasonably affordable if you got like basically 12 people to go or something like that it was like about the same as just going to see a movie with 12 people uh and you rent out a theater for dune i i i have to admit i i i uh, tie going to that experience with uh, the end of the Red Sox playoff run because I was like, I need to watch this playoff game. Wait, no, I don't. They're going to get crushed. Uh, they're not going to make the <laughs> World Series. Uh, I, it's okay. I'm just going to go to Dune uh, instead. And so uh, I went. I went and did that, and just had an absolutely incredible time. Uh, and I remember leaving, and there was like, I, I want to say two thirds of us, maybe it was closer to half, were just like, that was incredible. And then a mm-hmm. couple people who were just like, that was, I don't get it at all. Um, and I feel like that's been a a solid uh, a, a solid microcosm of the Dune uh, film experience of the last few years. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was during the time when I think the the rationale for theaters and it was AMC. Um, the, the rationale was that they wanted to make sure people who didn't feel comfortable being in a theater with strangers at that time could still get a group together and rent out a theater. And so it was very reasonably priced. I think once things sort of started to improve and people started to feel more comfortable in large crowds and, and whatnot, uh, the price went back up and then I stopped doing it. Um, so, or, or, or like scheduling, it became really hard. Like there was a bunch of things where it was like no longer as sustainable as, as a fun thing to do. Um, but I'm really, yeah, it's really, I'm really glad we did it and we can name names. Uh, my friend, um, Ben Brode, who uh, is one of the co-founders of Second Dinner, the game that makes Marvel snap. He, I believe, in our circle uh, after the movie was like, that was super boring. I almost fell asleep. Uh, and I'm saying that on this pod because he has since trotted that that take out on the internet and got totally buried by by people on the internet. So, like, by the truth? Yeah. So, so it's, it's public. So I feel it's public domain. I feel like I can talk about it. Um, he thought everyone would be like on board with his his uh his Zaggy Dune take, and people were not having it. So, um, shout out shout out to Ben Brode if he I actually don't know if he listens to the show. He's anyway. not going to anymore. He's <laughs> dead in a ditch from um, uh, his Dune. Uh, 
Yeah. Sorry, too. I hold on. I'm just unfollowing Ben Brode on all my social. Oh media. no! Because <laughs> uh, I think I followed him when I was obsessed with Marvel Snap, and clearly that guy's got bad takes. Uh, no, just I uh, wanted to have him catch a, a few strays. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, look, I'll say the the implication on the surface, like it's wild to remember where our heads were at in that time. Um, I know I went back to movies early my first movie back was minari because if i was gonna die i was gonna die for art um and (laughs) so i uh had been i and i think that was like april 2021 um so it was like i i had been going back for a while but you know it's hard to not remember this as um you know I, i didn't have a ben brode in my life but i had a lot of friends who were like why are you going to the movies? It's on HBO today. Mm-hmm. And it's wild to remember that weird window where we really got like Dune of all things like that same day uh, immediately. And, you know, so I always kind of think of that group of movies in that way. Um, I always think of the the Matrix uh reboot sequel uh and fell asleep at and then watched on hbo the next day to remember what i or to find (laughs) what i had missed so um so it's kind of a weird memory of of that batch of of movies that came out that fall but as i recall my amc was doing um the spacing where you like put your party in and then they blocked out i think a seat on either side and then you know filled the theater yeah. roughly you know half full that way um air can't pass two empty seats oh that's, absolutely that's, not that's science <laughs> uh you know i mean that that definitely falls in with the let's make sure we wipe our groceries and leave them outside <laughs> for two days uh part of mm-hmm. the pandemic which you know it's i'm glad we are making fun of now but at the time felt crazy um I had a fantastic time. So I actually, um, and I maybe I'm going to be kicked off this podcast right now, is I never saw the 1980s Dune um, and still have not seen the 1980s Dune. I had um, seen the kind of hype start for this and read the novel over the summer. Um, and it's definitely one of those where as a sci-fi fan, I was like, it's like seeing the master or the like Rosetta stone that translates everything you've seen before. You're like, Oh yeah. Star Wars isn't real or original. It's just this. Um, and now I'm getting canceled I'm, on the internet. I, I'm glad you're the one who said that. Cause I, I was like thinking, are we going to talk about that? And I'm glad you brought it up. So I didn't um, have to. But, but uh, so I didn't have like a strong, strong emotional attachment to it, but the movie blew me away and I definitely felt that my friends who just stayed home and watched on HBO look I'm sure they have great TVs but they didn't feel it the way I did they were like that that was that was kind of interesting you know definitely had some that's too slow or you know those kind of bad faith takes that I I don't take too seriously but um I loved it I think I watched it again that weekend at home just to to kind of enjoy it and um, uh, again, just dating two years ago or, or three years ago, um, I bought like the special edition Blu-ray because I'm like, this is going to be one that I have to have the, spe-, you know, like it's going to go with Lord of the Rings extended cuts and the Star Wars movies and the Indiana Jones movies. So it really felt like um, it was that level to me immediately. Um, so it's a little funny. I haven't actually watched 
that it that many times since then. I maybe have pulled out that special edition Blu-ray twice, um, but not like heavy rotation like some of those mm-hmm. other titles. I might be partially stealing this take from PT because I, I can't remember if you said it on an episode or just to me and to us personally. But um, <laughs> so we've gotten to that point now where I can't tell the difference anymore. But it it it's very rare for me during um the experience of watching a movie in a theater it's very rare for me to sort of like get out like step outside of my body sort of and have like a meta narrative conversation with myself but when i was watching dune and i think it's when they first arrive on arrakis like kind of around that area where i started to be like this is an incredible movie that i'm watching right now like I stepped out of myself to tell myself that like I'm you're watching something amazing right now. And and I kept thinking that periodically throughout the movie. I think PT said he was doing it like every five minutes and I don't think I was doing that. But uh, <laughs> he can correct well, me I, if, that, if I'm wrong. That is like I do have sort of a usually some kind of running narrative somewhere in the back of my mind. Uh, not like consistently. I mean, not running is not the right word, but like a pretty frequent just sort of like jolt. And it, this was actually from. The last time I watched it, which was it, they re-released it uh, a couple of weeks ago in anticipation of the new movie, and I went and saw it in the theater, and it was my my reaction to it was just every five minutes I'm just like I'm looking at the coolest thing I've ever seen someone put on a screen, and I don't know if it always is the coolest thing, but that's what it feels like in the mm-hmm. moment. But I I think yeah at the time I I think we did talk about this right afterwards that it was up there with Mad Max Fury Road as like at times in the movie when like a big sequence would end I would just be like this is incredible and I'm having an incredible time mm-hmm. uh, like that was just a, a yeah clear thought and I think that you said like yeah I had the exact same experience and like that's much rarer for you I feel like I turned around because I remember in the theater you were sitting right behind me. And I, I, it must not have been during the movie, but I have a distinct memory of turning around being like, this is really good. <laughs> and it might have, it probably was just like when the credits rolled or something, yeah. but I do have a distinct memory of turning around and saying that to you. Um, and yeah, as can we give a super short take? Cause we're going to unpack this when we kind of open the spoiler floodgates, but like short, short take. Why do you, why do you love it so much? Like, why was this such a good experience? Um, I would just say visually stunning, right? Like I, I, I mean, it, I'm just saying what you both just said out loud. Um, I'm time traveling and whispering in the theater. Yeah, guys, it is. Um, but <laughs> like I, there's a lot of discourse on movie theaters today about like, it is like going to a theme park and mm. none of the three of us take the movies that way. We, it's more like breathing oxygen to us. Uh, so we go to the movies a lot. But I I think in terms of like the kind of spectacle you want for your $19 or whatever you're spending for your premium ticket, like this just delivered in every way um, visually, but it felt um, elevated. It felt like prestige uh, sci-fi because it was not... um, it was not dumbed down in any way, right? And I think that would have been the danger of like, let's take this mythology, but let's do like lowest common denominators. And this movie, I mean, there are a couple things, but it it really treats you like you're smart and you are there to, you know, enjoy cinema, baby. And I enjoyed cinema, baby. <laughs> I, yeah, I fully agree with that. I think that there's something to the fact that even though we didn't really know this 
I don't remember knowing this going in that it was only going to be the first half of the first book. And that's why when it came up and it was Dune part one, it was like, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, But I think that taking, taking only like that segment of the story and really taking your time, even this most recent viewing, I've watched it a couple times at home, uh, but sort of like Greg, it was like, it hasn't been as maybe constant in the rotation, uh, but watching again in the theater, it's, it is still so like, oh, we, we he hasn't left like the home water planet yet. Spoilers, mm. I guess there's a home water planet. Um, uh, but it's the opening of the movie, but it is like 25 minutes in and I'm like, we haven't even, he hasn't even gotten to the desert. Like that's the movie is in the desert. So, you know, they really take their time and they, you know, I, I'm not going to say that the, the, the book is you know, extreme literary high art, but you know, it's smart science fiction and, and the, the movie is uh, crafted and, and the characters are constructed um, you know, or, or at least, you know, ported over with, it seems like a literary mindset of just sort of like, let's let these characters grow. Let's let their relationships breathe. And, and really the, the extra time they take uh, I think is super beneficial. Plus you just have this, these incredible huge spaces, uh, whether it's wide open spaces or or huge castles and and uh, colonies and ships and just there's all this stuff and it's very very big. Um, the scale is is just out of control, and uh, you know it, it's that combination of things that are really huge and then these people that you get very close to in the story. And I don't mean like you will feel emotionally for them, but I mean. You know, the camera is in close to these people just talking, but then we'll occasionally give you this like planet wide scope of, of this crazy stuff is it just feels like it's what you want, or at least it's what I want from science fiction is that mm-hmm. like, you know, weird other world or, or I think technically a far distant future, um, but it, it still has a core humanity to it. And the sort of the, the, the story of, both the power struggle and also the sort of colonizing uh, and the co- and the colonized trying to fight back uh, and the and the the, the, the mythical um, spiritual nature that comes through it as well. I think all of it combines together really well in a way that a lot of again a lot of our favorite sci-fi and a lot of our favorite space fantasy uh, have have heavily borrowed from. It's so immersive, and I remember when I sat down to write my review of Dune Part One. All I could think about was Lord of the Rings because I was like, mm. I have not felt so immersed in a world. And, you know, Lord of the Rings is fantasy. This is sci-fi. But I think the principle of kind of entering another world and feeling fully immersed into it, that and it's so complete, right, that you feel like everything has been thought of. That's the sign of good hard sci-fi, right, where every little mm. aspect of like how gravity works and like what is the economy and what is that, you know, like all those sort of world details, I think, are all really well thought out or seem really thought out. Uh, in the in the movie itself so um all right so that's just a taste we're gonna i I would add one thing sorry you were all right there on the transition but i just want to add like one other little thing which is you know there's there's some philosophical um or or even maybe political is a better way of saying it concepts from the book that's in the movie that have aged really well i'm mm-hmm. uh, there are things from the book that have not aged well that didn't get put into put into the movie but uh, you know uh, the the two main ones are sort of uh, 
anti-colonialism uh, and uh, just the concept of ecology. The phrase, uh, the, the, that term is, I believe, from this book uh, and has you know been ported over into reality. Um, and so like the sort of environmental of like, what is this planet and what have we done to it? And how is it responding? And how do we like try to tap into that uh, or, or respond to it and, and fix it? Uh, isn't like a, a super dominant theme, but it's very present. Uh, and I think I think it's more present in the book than in the movie, but it's mm. it's there in the movie. And I think, you know, it's one of those things of like, wow, like there's so many things that are, you know, what is it, 60 years old? That's like, oof, this aged really poorly. But like, there's a couple of really core things that have aged well. And I think that helps give that movie even more of an impact today. The ad- choices in adaptation, I think, partially explain why the movie itself was so successful. But we will get into that. Um, we are now ready, I think, to go into our full and unrestrained conversation about Dune. Uh, and more specifically, you know, like Dune is a whole franchise because we're going to have a little bit of talk about that. But, but more specifically, Dune, Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 1. So if you've not seen that film in particular, I mean, we're probably also going to talk about the David Lynch one. But we can we can sort of like not get super spoily with that one. I think if people haven't seen it, uh, Greg hasn't seen it. I've only seen the the first like third of it, <laughs> but I got I, th- I got it. It's like uh, and so if you you do not want Dune spoiled for you, please go watch it. It's actually on Netflix right now. It was on mm. Max for a really long time, and I don't I don't know if it's gone for Max or if you can just see it both places. It probably I think it's on both right now. It's on both right now. I mean that makes sense that they want to get people primed. Uh, for this weekend but uh so yeah go watch dune part one rejoin our conversation after you've done so all right i'm gonna kick it over to pt because he had the really good idea of giving some context about this as a franchise because my thing was like well we've done retrospectives for mission impossible for indiana jones but that had several films involved this just has one and then pt was like but there there was another film and a miniseries (laughs) (laughs) don't forget like and like 30 books no right right there's a there's a bunch of books um, yeah, I mean, it's well, it's funny, actually, because you, you kind of took like the headline and, and, and in a good way. Um, but when I was doing a, a very like quarter assed level of research uh, on, on looking, looking this up, um, the thing that I saw in multiple places was that like people saying Dune is the Lord of the Rings. The Dune books are the Lord of the Rings books mm. of sci fi, um, you know, to, to, to fantasy, to high fantasy. Um, so, yeah, it's. You know, and it, here it, I was thinking that was just my idea. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, but the thing is, you were thinking of the movies, and I think that that's important. But like, even in in the book form, so um, yeah, it, it basically, Dune came out in 1965. The book, um, it was uh, much longer than what science fiction books were sort of allowed to be at the time. So initially, it was it was um, like uh, the movies; it was published in two parts, uh, and so there was sort of a part one, a part two, and then then it was combined. Uh, and they, the author, Frank Herbert, uh, did, did do a couple of sequels. I think, whoa, let me actually double check this. Um, it was in, yeah, the late, like four years later, late sixties, uh, Dune Messiah, which is theoretically, uh, potentially going to be the third movie. And I think, uh, Denis Villeneuve is like, that's it. Like, that's what I want to do is just those two books. Um, and, uh, and then Children of Dune is in 1976, uh, which uh, I th- what what I have heard from other people, I read Dune 
and the and uh dune messiah when i was in high school and i don't really recall a lot about it i feel like i was not a very patient reader i was like yeah 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 let's go uh and sort of like zoom through them um but i remember hearing from other people then and carrying through now that like those first three for sure they get weirder and you know maybe the center doesn't fully hold um or or you have to sort of like that it's it's kind of splintering out into uh, wilder stories. Um, but Frank Herbert did, did three more books uh, in the early to mid 80s uh, and then unfortunately died. Uh, and his son picked up the mantle and there's there's just a bunch of other books that have come oh, out. This really is like then. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. It's uh, Brian Herbert with uh, a friend of Star Wars fans, Kevin J. Anderson, um, have worked together and yeah, I mean, I'm not counting this, but there's there's probably at least 15 more books that have come out. Um, and I don't think that's all Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, but they they did another like five or six. And then it started being, you know, the backstories of different houses and stuff. Um, so it, it was it was a huge deal and and it was uh, very successful. It was, uh, you know, certainly a best selling book. It won like the Nebula Award for best uh, best sci fi. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we've, we referenced it earlier, many, uh, many sci-fi things that we love have, have been borrowing from it since, uh, you know, even the original series of Star Trek was starting to like incorporate some Dune ideas like a couple years after it came out. Uh, and then the, a lot of the Tatooine stuff in Star Wars is, is derived directly from Dune as well as the sort of the empire, the imperial presence in a, in a galaxy and all that stuff. Um, so George Lucas actually said at some point that Dune was an inspiration for him, right? Like he's he's not that's not like a secret. No, or no, it's speculate about. It's it is uh uh yeah, I mean I think that he he lists that it's like, you know, the the John Ford westerns, the Kurosawa samurai movies and Dune are like, you know, some and then you know, taking those as sort of touch points and then the Joseph Campbell mythology. Uh, I'll I'll, tr- I'll throw to Greg on that to see if, uh, if if there's more specific things that he is aware of. But my memory is that sort of it was just one of those touch points that he would say was like he was kind of make doing his remix of sort of all the things he loved. Yeah, I took uh, all the stuff when I was a kid and I really uh, mixed it together. And yeah, I mean, it generally fits exactly as as PT is saying that, you know, I think Campbell is the number one reference he gives. Right. When when he talks about where Star Wars came from, he talks about translating his values to a new generation of uh, kids and doing so through, you know, space fantasy um but you know i think you if we we just joked about this i think on air that you know frank herbert had come out and been like star wars kind of ripped me off and it's like <laughs> yeah star wars kind of did rip you off uh sorry herbert estate um because you know clearly tatooine spice the emperor is you know and and now you do every once in a while see somebody's uh some 16 year old's hot take on the internet of, of like dune totally ripped off star wars <laughs> you see they they have spice why and it's like nobody like no just look at a timeline um so um and and i do think uh in some ways that novel felt kind of unadaptable and it had to do with that size and that scope and all those things PT just nicely articulated. Um, 
And, and I did just want to note, uh, I was at, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fancy person. So I was at Target this evening with my children and mm. they do have a, a, a Target, are, are, excuse uh, me, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they have, um, art books out for these, uh, movies called the art and soul of Dune. I think there's one volume out and the second one's coming, but Brian Herbert is involved with those books and Kevin J. Anderson. And um, I, from years of Star Wars fandom, followed Kevin J. Anderson. Like, they're still like, part of me was like, wow, you're like really into Dune, right? And and I think it speaks to the fact that I got to know Kevin J. Anderson through Star Wars, but he, like, as a sci-fi writer, it's it's Dune. Dune is the thing. It would be like if we got called up to write Star Wars. That's that's his version of that. And all the small side projects, which which do feel exactly like Tolkien when Tolkien's son's like, hey, I found a, a new piece of paper where dad wrote down Scooblong and Dublong married in the halfling tree village. And then like there's six books about it. Um, and, and I think the the smaller returns are painful and that's no discredit to the, to the, uh, the hard work that goes into them, which is part of why this is all preamble to say, like, that's why I think it was so surprising that this was so good because Dune felt stale or on its last legs. And like the Lord of the Rings films, it's like, no, this is incredible. And it put in the right hands and given the right, um, respect it can be something truly special but before that there was a time in the 80s man maybe it wasn't so special <laughs> pt you want to get that far well, I, I i i hate to once again drop the ball on, on a great segue but before we get to the 80s we got to do the 70s because there was an attempt at a dune movie before david lynch that is is pretty famous uh and and i i have to admit uh, another way in which I dropped the ball is I still haven't watched the documentary about it, but it was uh, there was an attempt by Alejandro uh, Hodorowski, uh, the the uh, Chilean French uh, filmmaker, to make uh, a version of Dune in the early seventies. Uh, so you know, within a decade of the movie coming out, and he he made uh, El Topo and the Holy Mountain, and it's these sort of cult movies that are super surreal with a lot of sort of mystical acid trip kind of like uh, imagery to it. So he was like, yes, I want to be in the desert and I want to do uh, a crazy Dune uh, movie. And so there, again, there's a documentary about it. It never happened. Um, and the documentary is by all accounts, absolutely incredible interviewing him and interviewing people who worked with him. Um, but just to, just to speak briefly about what it was supposed to be. Um, he uh, approached um, Mobius, the French uh, weird, surreal comic writer to do visuals, along with H.R. Giger, uh, who worked on Alien later. Also Dan O'Bannon, who did the effects um, on, on Alien. The music was going to be either Pink Floyd or Peter Gabriel uh, in the early 70s. You know, he approached both of them. The cast was going to include Salvador Dali as the Emperor, Orson Welles as Baron Harkonnen, uh, Gloria Swanson from Sunset Boulevard as the head of the Bene Gesserit, David Carradine, Bill from Kill Bill as Duke Duke Leto, uh, and um, in the Josh Brolin role, of course, uh, Hervé Villachez, um, the little person from uh, the Fantasy Island and the Man with the Golden oh. Gun. Uh, oh. So, I mean, what? Oh, and Mick Jagger as uh, Fade uh, Fade Rotha, the Sting mm. slash Austin Butler role. So. This looks like this would have been absolutely insane, um, but it didn't actually happen because Aww. 
uh, I think this because I think he probably didn't want to make a, a, a super narrative movie and he wanted to make this as weird as he possibly could. Um, so um, it went to a much more normal filmmaker, David Lynch, uh, <laughs> to make it uh, in the early 80s. And uh, it was supposed to be the answer to, you know, like uh, Universal's uh, answer to Star Wars, where it was like, we've got the franchise, like we're making it happen. Uh, and it uh, came out in 1984. Um, if, if for those of you who are uh, like us, Star Wars nuts, you may know David Lynch was approached to direct Return of the Jedi. Uh, and he was like, I don't think so. Um, like, it feels like this guy, you know, Lucas is going to do what he wants to do. And I'm just kind of going to be for hire. I don't want that. Uh, and so he got a little more uh, at the at time, at least thought creative control to work uh, on Dune. Um, Kyle MacLachlan is Paul Atreides. Uh, I'm just looking through this. Uh, Sean Young is Channy. Patrick Stewart. Um, uh, Patrick Stewart is in it as 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 Gurney again, Gurney. Um, not not Hervé Villachez. Um, uh, Max von Sydow as the environmental doctor. Sting, as mentioned earlier, as uh, as Fade Ratha, um, and uh, a young oh, who is the who's the princess? Uh, the woman from Virginia Madsen, right? Who was in That's... Sideways? Isn't that her? Yep. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, and it was not successful. It was, uh, it was kind of a disaster. And I think I, I, I like never watched it all the way through when, you know, again, I sort of had the received wisdom that it was bad when I was growing up and I only ever saw like little bits of it. I watched it all the way through after like within a week of seeing the, the Dune 2021 version and the problem is it's just trying to do that entire book in like two hours and 15 minutes. And so everything is just, you know, sped through. And especially after seeing the, the, the time and care of uh, the, the, the Villeneuve version, it just, this just felt um, way out of control, but it's just a bonk bonkers eighties effects and sets. Like it's certainly worth your time. If you like, if you were, if you were catching the fever for Dune, I think it's worth checking out. Um, I think it had a little bit of a, in Europe, we, we love it, like kind of, uh, acceptance that this is a, a, a you know, a low key classic. Um, but it's also the movie that David Lynch is like, I won't talk about this. Like never ask me questions about it. Um, <laughs> starting nice. like, so he doesn't claim it. Yeah. He's well, I mean, it, it basically is like, it was the, it's like the biggest regret of his life that he didn't mm. nail it. And um, I mean, or at least his career, I don't know. Right, right. But so I think that that's probably one of the few times that David Lynch didn't do exactly what he wanted to do. So, uh, you know, he's had he's had a blessed career. And uh, that's I feel uh, I like there are moments in it where I sort of thought, oh, I understand this is actually in some from a certain angle, a perfect match for David. Lynch. You know, what I mean, like I was like, I understand the David Lynch sensibility, how it kind of clicks into place in the dune universe like and and how like he might be into things certain things about it that like are that you know are weird quote unquote right like some weird sci-fi things that he would be like oh this is very interesting uh and as as a you know pseudo surrealist i like this um but yeah it's it i don't want to spoil what i probably am going to end up talking about when we do our top three but in a lot of ways all the things that are going wrong in the david lynch dune are things that Denis Villeneuve is doing right. So that's all I'll say for now. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I, when I, cause I didn't actually watch it until after uh, it was pretty recently actually. Um, and I remember just being like, Oh, this is cool from like an eighties, like the eighties aesthetic 
and you got Patrick Stewart in his like he hadn't quite figured out how to how to act not in the theater yet because uh, he's definitely doing the like and I am projecting to the back of the room <laughs> in every line uh, where where's you know a lot of people sort of note in his early Star Trek episodes like he's still kind of doing that like he hadn't yet adjusted to television <laughs> so uh, this feels a little bit like that too he's very young the other thing I'll note is like the the David Lynch Dune feels so much more like bougie is the wrong word but but everyone is kind of more aristocratic than in the new one because if you think about in a if you think about gurney patrick stewart versus josh brolin right and then if you think (laughs) i think the guy's duncan idaho it's the same type of thing where it's like and every and even paul the portrayal of paul atreides it's like it doesn't have that everyone's kind of like mil they're military people but they're in military people in the sense of like they're the ones sipping tea while the soldiers are fighting off on the other side of the world, right? Whereas Denis Villeneuve's Dune feels like everyone's getting sand in their face um, <laughs> in a way that I really appreciated, and feel makes it feel kind of a lot more grounded. But also, like it, it makes sense. Like it makes sense that that movie was made then and this one's made now. Yeah, in terms of both the maybe aesthetics and perspectives of the directors, and also what they could easily show. It's a lot easier to have people sitting in a room uh, and hearing about battles than showing the battles. Yes, for um, sure. Uh, so just to close it real fast, there were uh, two Sci-Fi Channel uh, miniseries in uh, the early 2000s, one Frank Herbert's Dune, and then uh, Frank Herbert's Children of Dune, Children of Dune covering both the second and third books. Um I recall there being, it was sort of like when they did a, I think it was also a sci-fi that did a miniseries version of The Shining that was like Stephen King approved. Like this is actually the book. Mm. Stephen Weber is Jack Torrance. Uh, and everyone was like, cool, this is like really faithful to the book. Unlike the movie, it's not that good. Um, but, uh, and that some people were just like, no, it's incredible. Um, but um, that's, that exists. Uh, and in and in confirming that and looking it up, I am uh, reminded there's going to be a, a spinoff Max series called Dune Prophecy. Oh, that's right. Uh, inspired by one of the Kevin J. Anderson, Brian Herbert books about the history of the Bene Gesserit that comes out later this year um, at an unknown I, I date. Was, I remember that being talked about. That's still on as a, I mean, I mean or is it going to get on a Wikipedia page? So <laughs> therefore I just feel like the ways Max and Zaslav have changed that I just kind right. of assumed that would go away but maybe it has, a, it has a full cast like of pretty you know I'm I'm seeing famous people like for for a stretch um it's Are we still getting the penguin one? Is that I still believe happening? so. Okay, maybe maybe they found Well, I mean it, it, Greg, you're right to be making that face. I feel like yes. It's one of those things where we haven't heard anything to the contrary, but we also haven't heard anything about it in a very long time. Yeah. Either one of those. So it, it was it apparently began production November 2022. Okay. It got, uh, uh, there was a little break and then it got uh, uh, sidelined by the strike for a while. But I guess it's filmed like at least like a, a, a big chunk of it. So I don't know. I, I did also see something like, Warner Warner Brothers Discovery has lost like sixty percent of its value since Zaslav took over. Um, that that came out uh, w- or was being discussed today. So who knows? Maybe everything gets shelved in a in a mm. Max Bialystok type move to just like try to try to make the company a failure to <laughs> to to maximize short term profits. But 
again, the, is it the, a producer reference? Huh? It is. Yes, of course. Okay, good. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. <laughs> also, for listeners who maybe didn't catch that. So, I had on here what made Doom Part One so successful. We've sort of been talking about how it has been successful and maybe more successful compared to past attempts to adapt Frank Herbert's novel. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we have to answer that right this second, but maybe we are going to answer that through our top threes. Um, Greg, why don't we start with you? Sorry, I'm, I'm going out of order on our our table do we want to start with three and then work away to one yeah okay i think that so that makes more sense so what's your number three all right so we uh each sat down just to make sure it's clear to the listeners and we wrote down like the top three things we love about dune and we didn't put any more specific parameters on that but we did reveal our answers to each other to make sure we generated kind of enough conversation and um i actually like this as a format because sometimes you just want to be like movies man something something yeah, really great. crazy is on the screen in front of me and um <laughs> So uh, I'm going to start uh, my number three, um, and this is just purely, I I sat down and I watched this movie uh, yesterday, I think. I don't know. Time's a flat circle. Did we also watch Maestro yesterday? I don't know. They're mixed in my we head. We talked which about Maestro had, yesterday. Which one had Snoopy in it? I don't remember. Um, so uh, no, my number three kind of watching this. I just fell in love all over again with the ornithopters. And that to me is one of those things where it's like, you know, the burden of a modern sci-fi movie is it has to show you something you've never seen before. And this is just a totally awesome spaceship idea. I mean, I guess it's atmospheric, so it's not a spaceship, but it's a sci-fi vehicle that is, you know, modeled off of a dragonfly and totally like never seen that before. And part of that's like, if you have the power of CGI and and can make it look like anything, make it something cool and original and wonderful. And so um, my first kind of move after I picked up my phone after Dune was over was like, how much was that Lego set again? Uh, maybe I want to <laughs> check out ordering that. Um, my main problem is I think it looks gigantic um, as oh. a, a, a Lego set. but That hasn't um, stopped it- you before. Well, yeah, but that's the problem. I have like a table downstairs with a Millennium Falcon on it that I just have to walk around all the time now. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm I really uh, I picked the Ornithopter as a representation of showing us something new and different and just something that um fits that i mean star wars has the cliche of the used galaxy feel it's not like the characters pause and are like wow look at these amazing ornithopters they're just like buckle up kid we're going and (laughs) um the action set pieces that feature those ships are really great as well and um so they they are my uh one on this list that's like whiz bang pow pow pew pew i love this so that's my first one and that's actually why, you know, because because I think out of all the things we have on our list, ornithopters evokes the design and aesthetics of Denis Villeneuve's specific vision of this world, right? And I feel like, again, <laughs> I, I especially on this rewatch, I was like, this was a perfect pairing, right? Because the sort of brutalist tendencies that he has, like if you think about his past films, like if if you think back to Blade Runner twenty forty nine and arrival right you can you can see an artistic voice kind of visually there's a visual language that he has a design aesthetic that he has that 
when it shows up in Dune is like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like for the for the world, for the sort of harsh nature of this 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 world, and in particular Arrakis, and like and the, just the idea that that the design of it's like so sleek and and it has a little bit of the like Nolan Batman bulk. You know what I mean? Like the Batmobile from the Chris Nolan movies. Like, yeah. but, but is also at the same time, extremely sleek. And so, yeah, I, I, I love this, this choice. I agreed. And the, the moments that I had sort of forgotten about, um, but was quickly reminded of when, when they happened is when whatever the, the pilot is like, we got to go into a dive and all the wings fold in and it just like, you know, yes. uh, uh, nose dives right down is like, it happens maybe three times certainly two times in the uh, in the movie and each time i'm just like giddily laughing in the in my seat just like yes this is absolutely incredible for all the reasons that um that greg is saying i and we are we are we're all star wars kids so like there is that that feels like particularly star warsian um with other influences uh as jen was just mentioning but uh, but yeah, it, it it works so well and is such a great interpretation. And I, I agree. It feels like this is this is Denny's like thumbprint on it because mm-hmm. the other versions of the ornithopters have been like, okay, that's fine. I guess <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> and also even like the the like bigger ships that are more kind of bulbous and round reminds me so much of Arrival, like of the like obelisk mm-hmm. sort of looking things, you know what I mean? That kind of float down. And so yeah, I just yeah, I love I love that it's both his but also perfect for for dune um but pt what's your number three um my, my number three is big old worms uh <laughs> which i don't uh i mean i don't really know what else to add there but the 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 sandworms are like such like the touchstone like even mm-hmm. people who like you know before this movie came out they were just like yeah there's like sandworms there's just like big worms and uh you know, it, it's uh, to the degree that there are were, like that Dune was a punchline. It was the punchline of Dune. Um, mm. But, you know, they're they're so menacing and uh, but also just you know, such a such a good stand in for just like the, the power of the planet and and the difference between the people who are like we're trying to like attack it or avoid it. We have to work around it versus the people that can sort of live in some degree of harmony with it. I mean, they're also, I guess, trying to avoid it, but you know, the, we're going to go in and we're going to pound through the ground and mine what we need to mine. And then, you know, like zoom out as soon as this, these things start appearing before it can attack us versus I'm going to, I'm going to sand walk and, and learn how to get to travel without alerting them and let them just sort of be. And then, you know, again, this hasn't happened in the first movie, but I think it's pretty, you know, it, you see it at the very end of the first movie that there are people who can ride them. The trailers for the second movie have made it very clear this is going to right. be uh, something that will be continued to explore. Um, but yeah, they, they just, they look, they look really good. And <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a simple thing to say, but it's true. Um, they look great and like have you know found a way to seem very natural um, without being like basic, like just the, the, the sort of the, the, the little, uh, I don't know what they're sort of, I can't remember the word for it, but you know, the little like thick hairs, like on the inside of the mouth, um, that, like cilia? Uh, are, is that the word? Yeah, I think that's mm. right. Um, mm. as, as seen we'll in Greg's, eighth grade biology, <laughs> yeah, as, as, as seen in, in Greg's popcorn bucket, um, yeah. that you can sort Did of, you buy you one? Know, no. no, I have it. Uh, okay. Okay. 
But we we joked uh, when I saw it in person that you said go back and get a video because it'll be your most uh, it'll be it'll help our social media. I just got one of those alerts on my picture of it that I posted that that's like this reached eight hundred percent more See? people than you usually wow. do. So the the internet loves the popcorn bucket uh, definitely. Um, <laughs> So. But but for the record, so so the story was when this popcorn bu- bucket first hit the internet, like it wasn't out yet. It was just a, a concept. I was like, well, I got to have that. And then and then I had some time to think, um, <laughs> come to my senses. And Greg actually was like, do you want me to get the popcorn bucket to both uh, PT and me? And we both were like, no, <laughs> we don't want it. We passed. Um, maybe we'll come it's- to regret that. Who knows? But. It's so much worse in person. That's just really? all I can say. If you've seen oh, it God. on the internet, um, yeah, it's it's just it's atrocious. Well, and but I want to uh, grab the the ball from PT and say that on my rewatch, the moment that really stood out to me is uh, I didn't appreciate this enough before was the moment um, Paul confronts the sandworm. I, I don't know if confronts is the right word, um, and what is so incredible in that moment is the scale you're like mm. oh my god like this is you know right, I think he looks so tiny he looks so tiny this beast and and like pt said the power of the planet kind of you know represented in this form um and then when there's that kind of quiet moment and it i, I i'm gonna just go with it breathes but it's you know it's it's vibrating kind of in a way and the animation around like the little cilia moving with the breath um, and then the whatever organs are kind of visible in there. All of that is just incredible and so much more than it needed to be. And so for me on the rewatch, especially, it felt like Denis Villeneuve was, it is way too late for me to butcher French (laughs) names. Uh, um, You know, my pal Denny, uh, he, um, he was like, Oh, you, you want worms. Like I'll, I'll do the worms. Like if that's what this is known for, I'll make this like really memorable. And, um, you know, uh, staying spoiler free, a lot of the early hype as critics have now had their embargo lifted. It's about the size of Dune 2. And I assume that will be featuring sandworms and some other things as we know from the trailer, but just that it's going to be, you know, feel really big and that bigger with more worms yeah so in terms of pt's big old worms i'm just focusing in on big jen you (laughs) want to take all i don't know um so the only thing i'll add too is that the cool thing about the sandworms is that they are integrated into the fremen culture and religion in a Mm. way that's really and like that's something i didn't pick up on when i on earlier watches this rewatch the moment where um kinds is like right that's that's her name um mm-hmm. the doctor uh or the ecologist right that's what she is technically um she she says something about like shai halud like she has she has like some mantra about shai halud that she in, that she drops pretty early on and then you're like oh okay and then um mm-hmm. and then the yeah the woman who gives the chris knife to um the mom uh L- Lady Jessica? List of people. yes thank you i was like <laughs> i was gonna be like ilsa faust um wow. <laughs> uh <laughs> she could have used that night dead reckoning <laughs> um 
anyway um spoilers for mission impossible dead reckoning apparently uh <laughs> i guess i'm tired too great. a former part um, one no longer a part true. one That's no right. longer part of part one like, we're we're putting in part ones we're taking them away anything can yeah. happen folks um but yeah so that's just, of part that's, one. <laughs> um so yeah i i like that the sandworms aren't just like a, a terror and a menace and a threat like a like sharks you know what i mean like they're not just like sh- the shark and jaws like they're like part of the part of the the culture and the the mm. world in a way that is uh, there's a sociological component to them as well um all right so my number three so you can uh, everyone on this call can now see in the doc i wrote oscar isaac's beard Mm. i almost wrote oscar isaac's luscious beard uh then i thought that was too much or it should that should be self-evident um and then i crossed it out (laughs) because i was like well that's not i don't want to use one of my three things on that probably um but does just so you know that's where my heart was um but uh and then I also saw like I saw one of Greg's other choices. I'm like, that's tipping on that too much a little, a little bit. Uh, but my choice is my number three is the voice. But then I'm also using that to smuggle in sound and music, the sound and the score for this, because I think just because I think they all tie together. And I think the voice I, I start with the voice because for me in both the the Dune, the book, like like Dune outside of this one movie, the Bene Gesserit are by far the most like fascinating sci-fi world component to me personally. Like there's lots of other cool stuff, obviously, but like, um, and the idea of that they have this power, that's the voice that they can use. And then the fact that the Denis Villeneuve chooses to open specifically with Lady Jessica teaching Paul at like across the dining table about using the voice. Like, I think it's so cool. And just the sound work that they use to like signal that someone's using the voice. Um, I love and then like yeah this this rewatch I notice a lot more the use of silence right because Lady Jessica uses the sign language to communicate with everybody mm. um, in a way that become that at first is just cool and then becomes very important uh, <laughs> at the end of the movie um, and then also just like Hans Zimmer's score you know he's the goat uh, and invented we we can't I won't let anyone forget that he invented uh, he invented musical instruments just for this film so. Mm. That's my number three. Fair. I, I I agree with everything you're saying about the uh, the, the sound design. Uh, I do think that those moments of silence uh, and and or at least extreme quiet are part of why I think the movie has a little bit of the it's boring burden from the people that watched it day and date at home, kind of like half on their phone because it mm-hmm. was like what's even happening? Like I don't hear anything. Like I've been looking at my phone for five minutes and I haven't heard anything unfold i guess nothing's going on when there's actually a lot of interactions and interesting things um but yeah it's the it's the contrast between like some incredibly loud parts uh both musically and and with the the sound effects uh and and then the these part, really quiet moments the parts where it's like silent except for like the the beating of the ornithopter mm. blades so good like just all that stuff i don't know there's so much so many good moments where i'm like ah that's genius uh, <laughs> um with just sound sound work in the film um all right so well i was gonna just say down to like um i just when they do the combat and the shields right like Mm -hmm. there's a sound there and just it everything works so cohesively Mm -hmm. and i know you have a point coming up that'll probably take some of that but like 
to think about how deliberate it all is that this doesn't need a ton of exposition because it's like, we'll just make it so incredibly simple and obvious, but give you a cue in all these dynamics so that you just get it. And, and it's, it's clear. So yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to assume that was about to be a transition to me to number two. Uh, yes. So I can continue on. And uh, maybe this round is like us touring through the craft categories. So mine on this is uh, the costumes. Um, you know, um, uh, there, there was a, a way in which the, the suits needed to be cool. And I think that was like, Oh, we'll see cool uh, suits with the, what are their names? Now I'm forgetting with still suits. Still suits. Still still suits. suits. Yeah. yeah. And those will be really cool. And those will be the main props, but then there's just like such unnecessary, incredible costuming in this. Like, like some characters are just like uh, around for like a second and they flash over to a character and he or she is wearing something like incredible. That could be the center of a museum exhibit on um, Dune craftsmanship. And then it just like cuts away. And, um, you know, uh, Lady Jessica has probably the most of those. I think the arrival outfit veil mm-hmm. thing is is probably tough you can tell i i edit a fashion magazine um <laughs> and then um i will never not throw that in when yeah, I, I was gonna say you bring that up at every opportunity it's <laughs> great also, also like to my colleagues who if they listen to this they're like dang it here too like shut up Greg. <laughs> uh, so um can't escape uh, but the one I really love, oh no, I'm gonna, I, and and this is one of those times where I have had the IMDb open the whole time to try to remember everybody's names, and this person is not on the top. the The member of House of Trades who's there, and he's is he the head of security, and he uh, he offers to resign when. Um, oh yeah, he's the the, the Mentat. He's the Mentat. Uh, Mentat. Yeah, that yeah, he does is, have a specific name. I said th- Mentat because th- I couldn't it's, remember It's Thufir Hawawat or Hawawat. There we go. Played I mean, by that's Stephen McKinley Henderson. Open. It doesn't roll yep. off the tongue. It's great. But um, the scene when I, it's again part of that kind of arrival portion of the film, not arrival Villeneuve's other movie, but arrival <laughs> on, on Arrakis, where um, he just walks up and he's got uh, a, a parasol, like a classic, like I'm a geisha parasol. And you're like, what like amazing (laughs) like and he's got some really good makeup there which i know is not costuming but you're just like and like nobody pauses and is like i love your parasol let's all celebrate how good the craftsmanship is here it's just like let's elevate this in every way and not even hang a lantern on it and we'll just let people discover it so shout out to all the costumes (laughs) i feel like it's that special combination of it's going so hard to be weird and unusual and then it's so naturalized in the story you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's like nobody no one's no one's gawking at it or commenting on it the other thing i'll bring up about about our the mentat is when he when um the duke asks like how how much money did they spend just to come here and then he does that first calculation because it's the first time mm. we see him flip his eyes mm-hmm. it's so weird and yet <laughs> so not a big deal you know what i mean <laughs> it's like yeah. um and so well done and so smoothly done and it's not it's like i don't yeah like do do it does anyone know how they actually did that that's not a that's not like a fishing question i actually don't know no i don't, no, I don't okay. know i don't know either but here's what i do know which i don't think 
which you guys may not know, or well, Greg may know because he's because he read the book as well. Maybe Jen, did you read the book? I at have some not, point, I have finished the book. Okay, sorry, I, I don't mean to bring re- the spot. No, 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 you're <laughs> good. <laughs> I did this to myself. I read the book up until I knew the movie would be and like where I thought the movie mm. would, first movie would end, and then I was like, I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna finish this. Right? Guess what? I haven't finished it, and I'm seeing the movie on Friday. So you've this got a terrible tonight. plan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll, 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 we'll finish the episode soon so you can get back to reading, but, uh, the, you know, the, the Mentats are there doing it because in, in the world of Dune, there are no computers and there's no robots. Uh, and, and I believe the backstory that's in that, it, I don't even know if it's in the first book, um, but it's in one of the Frank Herbert books is that like way, like basically like our time, com, you know, it was like a Terminator Skynet situation where the computers, you know, created a huge nuclear war that wiped a bunch of people out. So they were like, we're not doing it. Like no more machines, no more uh, machines that can think. And so that's why they need the spice because the spice gives them like, gives the people that run the ships, the ability to lock in to like find the, the wormholes or whatever to travel, uh, to travel to other planets. Um, and that's why we, they have people to do the calculations because they won't let machines do it. So wow. no one says that. That's never discussed in this movie. Um, it's just like hanging out with this guy who does the weird eye thing uh, and can run off calculations real fast. And it's up to you the degree to which you want to build out from that or or dig into this this lore. So yeah, I, Jen, I, I actually want to set you up for your number two. I was going to say, can I do can I do my number two because we're already talking about it? So yeah. Um, in our in our Google Doc, I was shocked because I was the last one to put my picks in. I was shocked this was not already taken. Um, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Uh, this is, no. okay, you're, you're you're presenting this in a borderline Mallory Rubin approach uh, uh, in a draft where it's just like I can't believe this is still on the board. Hold on, that I went costumes because I remembered your review at the time and noted. Oh. So these are the actions of a long take review, long time stand. And you're just condemning me and throwing me under the bus. With you had PT to turn it into something nice. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, all right. That's fair. That's fair. And, and in theory, you chose a specific example of the thing I'm about to say. And that's why we're yeah. talking about it after you, when you shared your pick. Right. So like, it's all good. Um, but <laughs> I said, I, I chose world building. Cause you're right. That was the thing that I was most wanted to talk about and most blown away by when I was writing my review. If you go to the long take, maybe I need to repost this now. I'm thinking mm. um, if you go back and read my original review of show part, notes, part one, mm. yeah, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, I'm, I'm gushing about world building the entire time. Um, and, and specifically because here's the thing I've been hurt so many times by sci-fi and fantasy movies that get this wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, you know, the number one offender of this is the Daniel Craig, Nicole Kidman Golden Compass movie mm. and uh, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials one of my top fantasy series that I love I've been reading for a long time and I love so much they messed it up because from the second the movie starts it's just dumping exposition on you like a ton of bricks and it's like and then this and then oh this other thing you need to know okay we're gonna explain this and well we can't keep going unless you know about this and by then, people are just like, no, I don't want to watch this movie anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it happens time and time again. And so anytime. And what's interesting is that this movie, and I'd forgotten this, still starts with a voiceover exposition, technically. 
because it's mm-hmm. Zendaya being like, this is what happened to the Fremen on Arrakis and the Harkonnens came and right. So she actually is telling all that story. But because it is so subjective to her point of view as someone who lived through this, it doesn't have the same effect of the disembodied voiceover, like telling us all the fan- rules of the fantasy universe, right? Or the sci-fi universe before we actually even start the story, right? It, it is it is from the get-go part of the story. And we learn things in little breadcrumbs or not at all, as we've just been saying. This movie doesn't hold mm. your hand at all. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it has to talk down to you and explain things to you and stop just to explain things to you. It just is going on with the world and you have to figure out and you have to learn about it as you go. And I feel like this film does this so well from from simple things like Paul watching a little hologram to learn about Arrakis. Guess what? That's us learning about Arrakis, right? That's helpful. Um, but it's so naturalized and part of the story that it works really well um, to even things where like just people talking to each other about something, right? Everything, everything is part of everything. Everything that gets explained is because characters need to explain it to each other, not because we need to know. Um, and that's my fa- that's my absolute favorite thing about Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of this book. Yeah, I, I do think it's up there with you know some of the big big movies that have these exposition dumps that you just you don't care because you're just like I'm enthralled with what's happening. The opening of the Lord of the Rings, which is I think where the Golden Compass went wrong. They were like that movie opens with like ten minutes of just a story being told. I can do that. Uh, and it's like no, you, you you actually you can't. Like you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Um, you know, the, uh, Obi-Wan and Luke in the, or old Ben Kenobi, I should say in the hut where it's just like, what's a Jedi? What was the clone wars? And what's a lightsaber? And you're just like, you don't, you're not thinking about, I'm just getting a bunch of like backstory world building dumped at me. Like you're just getting Alec Guinness, like telling this beleaguered story to this, the, the, the someone that he's clearly wanted to tell this to for a really long time. Uh, and then not, not quite, uh, as, 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 uh, expansive a franchise as either of those. But I also always think about the parking lot scene in Back to the Future where Christopher Lloyd is just like tasked with explain everything about time <laughs> yes. travel yes. and the DeLorean and everything that's going on. All of these bits are going to be important later. But like he's just this like so frantic and excited and Michael J. Fox is so good at being like, what are you talking about? That you're <laughs> enjoying their interaction to the point that you don't realize that you're, you know, the medicine is... is uh, is washing over you for, for later in the movie. So yeah, I, I agree. This it does such a good job. And then yeah, all these little bits and pieces that, uh, that we get like the, um, I mean, it, it's the Imperial planet, right. That has the guy that's just like, Whoa, yeah. it's like doing the weird, like droning noise. And it's like, yeah. what is that guy doing? I don't know. What if he's just <laughs> off to the side? Like, that's so cool. Uh, you don't see him again. Like he's done. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's just a ton of stuff like that. Um, you just described the cantina in Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, I think, I, and, and I just to quickly add, sorry, I don't mean to like, you know, take the floor back, but uh, you know, <laughs> I've not seated the floor. Um, uh, and now I'm just gonna filibuster because I don't remember what I was gonna say. Um, the, <laughs> the, the, the put um, down the cock. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think the thing that it holds our hands with the least is the politics of this universe right and like and that's the thing that really struck me when i watched the david lynch one is like they stopped to be like and who are you oh i am the you know and like and and then there's so much heavy-handed exposition even if it's between characters it feels so clunky where they're like please explain to me the entire 
like inner workings of this political system and uh and how, why is it that this is a bad thing and right and whereas in in the Villeneuve film it's really they they still have those conversations but it's so subtle and it's kind of like you're eavesdropping as opposed to like they're turning to you and being like okay so like <laughs> let's explain this and there's still things i think on my first watch i because i i wasn't i had only just read read the book or started to read the book for the first time when I saw the movie for the first time. And I remember being like, really trying to work hard to keep up and be like, okay, wait, like, why is it that? Oh, no, they, why don't they want to go to Arrakis? Like, who's going to be mad about this? Right. And I, I just like that. That was something that I had to figure out. That was the exact point I was going to make uh, before the floor was stolen back was Sorry. just that I think the, the politics is specifically like so well done here. And I do think, um, you know, what's brilliant about it is it's actually really simple, right? Rival houses and all all that. And like we don't need like the history of each and why they hate each other. Just tell us they hate each other and and we're we're good. Um, and then just to try to have a different point because uh, I already stole the floor, so I have to say something. Um, I also just like that there's a version of sci-fi that's like, we came up with this cool thing and we have to explain it so that you appreciate us for our genius. And this is just like, hey, Stellan Skarsgård is going to just kind of hang there. And uh, another time he'll just be in a giant bath. <laughs> It's a, a visual language so that it all is just kind of his opulence and his like corruption and all that. But like somebody else would stop there and be like, hang on, let's explain what this nutrient bath is. Uh, and uh, we'll have a version you can purchase uh, online later. <laughs> yeah. um, and this movie's just like, just deal with it. And, and uh, back to PT's original point about, you know, some people just weren't vibing with that. And I, I understand those people, right? Like where they're like, well, why is he in a bath like that? And you're like, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, and, and so on. So I think, you know, a, an expositioning moment is uh, that I, I love is the moment I, I quoted in my opening, which is like, like Momoa takes a moment to be like, listen, like actually water is valuable. And, and this is a, a and, um, and, Yet it doesn't feel like exposition dump. It's like that character has to say that to that other character to dispel the moment and the tension. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. a character right. talking because they're about to be super offended, and then he has yeah. to be like, "Nah, wait, wait, wait." <laughs> yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I wonder if, and and this we should not spin off into a whole other discussion. But uh, I, I wonder if there, there's something to the idea of. Or, or a benefit to the the using franchises, using pre-existing IP to do these big movies. Because, uh, again, there's people who are just like, I don't care. I don't really like that I don't get explained these things. But I feel like the usual folks that would just be like, this is a plot hole. Like, they never explain that this happens. Like, cinema sin slam. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there's a big stamp on it. This is sort of like, no, you've got like 20 books you can go read. And you have like, I think some comic series. Like, there's a lot of lore out there. So, you know, go go find the 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 dune explained uh youtube account that can uh you know find a thousand and twenty three easter eggs uh in denny villeneuve's <laughs> dune uh and they'll they'll have an explanation for you somewhere around like two and a half hours in uh about what was going on there and people will be like th those kind of people would be like yes i am satisfied uh and you know is that is that part is that part of the calculations of we're gonna spend 
you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on this sci-fi movie, there won't be uh, as much pushback if we let someone create their own world that's not fully explained because there's already this like base layer of intense ex- explanation elsewhere. That's probably not what studios are thinking. But I'm wondering if if that adds uh, at least removes some of the some of the the pushback um, from you know to things like that, which doesn't help. The, the this is just boring, and I wish I knew more. Uh, or I wish I cared, but I just think that some people need to pay more attention. Wow. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Sorry. Shots fired. Um, Shots are fired. Uh, and I'll, I'll just go real quick to my number two. Cause I feel like it's sort of touching upon a bunch of other things. I just said mood and atmosphere. And I think that, I think I, I, I went real more conceptual with um, my non worm answers. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it just touched on a lot of the things you're discussing. The world building uh, is a part of that. The, the, the sound and music and costumes, uh, I think all were as well. Those are just sort of like <laughs> actual um, uh, filmmaking specifics that help create that. But just the, uh, just like how, like what it feels like and how there are all these different spaces and these different cultures. Um, and you know, the, the way it just sort of lets you sink into this world and feel like you're really being transported into different parts of these alien lands, but with, with like enough to ground you to feel like, yes, okay. I understand these characters. I understand these conflicts. I understand these relationships. So that's all I have to say to add to what we've already been saying. Uh, oh no! I just looked at PT's number one and realized I walked all over it when responding That's fine. to your number three. So I was going uh, to let you. I, I was just going to say you. You. It's been covered, but um, <laughs> well, then I'll just say it then because we brought it up. Yeah, My number one right was in. scale because uh, I just think that everything that like I think about when I think about this movie is just between you know uh, obviously like the the big old worms i really just kind of walked on myself because i basically had number one <laughs> yeah, that's three. true we're both <laughs> things that are big um uh, but i you know w- we were both saying it we were all saying it earlier where it's you know it's these the the firefight in the the port when the the empire's uh troops attack uh was it the, the sardukin sardukar sardukar thank you um and uh and they come in and it's just these these huge ships are just blowing up and crashing into each other. Uh, and, you know, these the, the, these huge, like, pits they're in uh, at different points. Uh, the the giant buildings on the random planets we go to. Uh, there's just all these these moments where you feel like, oh, there's just so many people around. And, and there's so many, like, huge things. Uh, and then also, you know, again, when we get into just like, well, here's just this little, you know, tribe. Uh, or not even tribe, but almost like a scouting party of Fremen. And, uh, you know, we, we see them in a big sort of cavern, but, uh, you know, we're, we're very close. We're just with them. And so we, we get to see sort of what feels like thousands, if not more uh, groups of people. And then also these, this group of like, I don't know, six or, or eight. Uh, and, and just the, the ability to move between that and feel like, um, you know, the, the, the events that are, are happening and the, the sort of huge kind of tectonic shifts can overwhelm these characters, yet they sort of stand firm and, and keep, keep um, taking action that's going to change the course of things. Uh, I just think that's cinematically depicted so well, um, plus everything Greg said earlier about scale. <laughs> I also well, really like the, the high contrast, and I think scale is part of this high contrast between the uh, Paul's home planet and Arrakis, right? And like how he, they're, they're basically opposite worlds and you really feel that. And I think that's only possible because of what you're talking about. 
I, I thought scale was just purely Stellan Skarsgård and how big he was. Uh, so, uh, wow. uh, <laughs> uh, is, is this Andor season two? Is that where Luthen is headed? Uh, was also in my mind. On oh this no. Rewatch because Stellan Luth- Skarsgård. If Luthen's in some kind of mud bath, we're in trouble. <laughs> um, L- and L- so- Luthen the hut. <laughs> <laughs> So to uh, PT's list, I just want to add um, the, I guess it's kind of the first big action set piece where they are out flying over the harvester and the sandworm comes and the like, yeah. there's a sandworm miles away and then the dropship coming and all of that and how that's all massive. And like you feel the scale of each of those things out in this desert and then it shrinks down to Paul falling down on the sand outside. And and the memorable part of that scene to me is is uh, Brolin and uh, Wonka uh, having that interaction right there. <laughs> um, and then, um, but it's set against all of that. And I do think there's something really important about the contrast in those moments of they are so small and they don't matter, but yet that's, all that matters and it's it's really nicely done. I was gonna say, just remember that could have been uh Herve Villachez and Alejandro <laughs> Hodorowski's son to to the to the sound of a weird early 70s Pink Floyd song. I'm just letting you know that, that, that that's, that's that's what we could have had. We used to be a country. Uh, oh the worm, um, the worm. I that I have a distinct memory in the theater of when they go into like action mode, like once they realize what's going on and then they're like talking to each other, like you do this and you do this. And like, they're trying to figure it out. I was just like, yes, like this is, <laughs> this is it. This is so epic. And like, and that's not even like half, isn't that just like halfway through the movie? That was the other thing too, is the big, huge battle when the starter car show up and there's like a huge battle. There's still like an hour of movie left after that, isn't there? Like, I remember looking yeah. at the progress bar on my screen and being like, what? Like I, that, I remember that as being in, in most other movies that would be the end of the movie. You know what I mean? But instead it's only half a movie. I don't know. We'll get to it. I, I'm going to, I'm going to segue by throwing it to Rick. So the other thing I remember is that Oscar Isaac is super awesome in that scene. I know I was crushing on him earlier, but like, he is really good. He's so convincing as like the noble Duke, right? Like, and, but, and that on the, and again, in contrast to the David Lynch version where everyone is very kind of like aristocratic and doesn't get their hands dirty, like you get the sense that, you know, he's he is a leader, but he's also kind of, you know, been in the trenches and stuff or like he's not afraid to go in the trenches and, and, and do something about it. Right. So um, so maybe that sets up Greg's number one. I don't know. We'll see. Sure. Um, mine is probably the most obvious thing in the world, um, which is the casting of this movie is incredible. And on a rewatch, especially, I had forgotten just essentially how many movie stars are in this and that it's just a bottomless like treasure trove of these actors who some of whom signed on for very small parts um in in uh at least across part one and i'm I'm not always the best at remembering who will get a little more meat on the bone in part two but but there's some of that here so i do think um it actually i guess maybe i'm just also crushing on oscar isaac um but it reminds me a little bit of our spider-verse uh across the spider-verse uh conversation where Spider-Verse filled its ranks with just 
all these stars, but then actually demonstrated why they are stars. And mm-hmm. I think in Dune, it's like, you know, I, I actually had to check if this came first or if Knives Out came first. And in Knives Out came first, um, which gets a lot of credit for the like, let's just have a really great cast that amazes everybody. And that's what they did for Glass Onion. Um, but for and and this came after the first Knives Out it came between the Knives Out films. Um, but it's not just that the names on the posters go on and on and on. It's that they found people who fit the roles and who can really deliver. And um, Oscar Isaac is actually very high on that list for me. Um, and he's got a small set of scenes, really. Um, and, I, you know, I did go in having read the novel. So I knew I'm like, he's not going to be around that long. Um, right. and, uh, and yet owned every moment he was on that screen. Uh, he and I are uh, birthday buddies. I think he's got a little, a few years on me. Um, but I, I think all of my beard growing ability went to him um, somehow. That's how birthday buddies work. Because uh, I, I have none, no, no such ability, and, and it is uh, to steal Jen's word, luscious. But the much, much love to Rebecca Ferguson. Much, much love. Um, Josh Brolin, uh, uh, Jason Momoa, my text after finishing my rewatch is like, this movie actually makes me like Jason Momoa. Any other time I see him in a film, I'm like, why do people like this guy? Like, I don't get it. Like, everybody was like, he reinvigorated Fast and Furious. I'm like, no, all of this is just terrible. Uh, But it was a reminder here that he is actually a pretty charismatic dude. And I, it, it, it fits with your exposition point. Like he walks up and hugs, uh, Paul and you're like these are like best friends and they've had it forever and the I think it was very heavily featured in the trailer where it's like oh you've got some some new muscles and Paul's like I do uh he's like no, no. um it's just like so well done I guess I I skipped around uh Timothy Chalamet and it's it's the Chalamessance um I it took me a while to get him as well he was never and, out I mean, I, have... this might be a Greg exclusive Assange. I, I don't <laughs> okay. know if anybody else were, uh, yeah. had checked out. Yeah. Uh, it was one it, too many Wonka trailers for Greg. And so Chalamet came to me from Little Women is where I first saw him. And then I went back and rightfully filled in with Lady Bird. But um, the way he uh, there's a there's a particular scene. It's in Paris in Little Women where he's just like draped on a chair in the most foppish way possible. And I remember seeing that. I'm like, that's going to be the action star guy like <laughs> him. And um, yet he nails it. And, you know, I, I think it fits that he does need to be kind of a little kind of namby pamby at the beginning of He's this. He's a deep. He's a little desert yeah. mouse. Mm-hmm. Well, and so and then the way he fills that. And, and I do think, um, you know, Wonka demonstrated this guy can open a movie now because that really hung on him and i think dune is to thank for some of that and while the cast just continues to grow um i think you can't ignore that he's got real star power and i he might be going somewhere that young chalamet (laughs) can we just just real briefly talk about he was in three movies in 2021 uh and he's paul atreides in dune uh, he was the only uh, fully successful character to me in Don't Look Up uh, as the, the, the stone oh, skateboarder. Yeah. Correct. Uh, and uh, I'm 
borderline shocked that Greg hasn't already jumped in to note he is in one of the main stories in the French Dispatch uh, and is excellent yes. in that as well. He is an excellent with in that. Also yeah. a joke about how he has uh, muscles. He's shy yes. about his new <laughs> muscles in that one, which yes. I don't know if it's directly, uh, but yeah. What a year. I mean, I think he's such a perfect Paul Atreides because you have to, because he is kind of like, one, you have to believe he's very young, right? And two, you have to believe that he is both sort of like mousy and underestimated, but then also this like prophesized hero character who has like these inexplicable powers and can like basically own every situation he's in, you know what I mean? And be this like massively powerful character. And so I feel like that he's so well, because to your point, like he's, he and so many other actors in this movie are so well cast because of the matchup to the character, right? And what the character demands. Um, it's not just their, that they're movie stars, like you said, they're movie stars that are well suited to play these particular characters. And r- how are we ranking t- our Timmy Chalamet roles? Like, is this in the top three? I, I think it's probably it in my top three. It absolutely is for me. Right? Okay. I know. Yeah. yeah. But it's, if we were it's, doing it's, like it's in Lady Bird, and then I don't, I don't, I haven't seen Call Me by Your Name, but my guess what? is that will be third. I know, I missed that one when it came out. Okay, and, well, and now so I'd be Hammer interested if watch. like general True. public puts this in there. I, I'm not using the normie word, but like <laughs> the and th- this is a little bit like he's clearly like a heartthrob star to a big portion of the general public, and if you love him. Um, for for uh, those reasons, I don't know that Dune ranks. Like, I think Lady Bird and Little Women might be higher right. for a lot of mm-hmm. that side of his fan base. I also, uh, w- uh, last year he was in the uh, the Bones and All. Is that what yep. it was called? The Cannibal Love Story, which was like not crazy that. that he's out doing that, and people loved him in that. By which I mean people who uh, find him to be attractive. Um, <laughs> Because he was like loving and sweet and also ate people. Uh, it's a weird movie, but he's a star. Totally go for it. <laughs> uh, directed by uh, Luca Guadagnino. Guadagnino? Oh, okay. Yeah. Who is, uh, whose movie Challengers is, ba- is back running trailers that I believe give away 90% of the movie. Because uh, <laughs> it's finally coming out again. I was like, oh, right. I forgot that I already knew everything that happens in this movie. <laughs> except for probably the last 15 minutes. Yeah. That's fair. Um, we haven't talked enough about Rebecca Ferguson. Mm. She's incredible. Never could. Never. (laughs) Totally unappreciated. Should have Um, been nominated for this And I feel like, yeah, oh, that's right. Oh, that makes me mad. Um, yeah, I think her, I, I can see the, the, the point because I kind of remember echoes of this criticism back back when the movie came out that her part is not big enough or that like she doesn't have enough to do in the movie. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I remember that being a thing. But when I was rewatching it this time, there's a scene where she's just in a hallway and sh- her hands are shaking mm. and she's like freaking out. And then she comes out the door totally composed. And I feel like that is that to me is like all you need to know about why she's amazing in this movie, because as a Bene Gesserit, she has to be like really stoic and kind of tough. Right. But then at the same time, she's Paul's mom. And so she kind of has to play these two roles and her character by definition is sort of like caught between these two worlds. Right. Like I think Duke Leto actually says like, I'm not talking to Paul's mom right now. I'm talking to the Bene Gesserit. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Like he forces her to like a- answer the question of, will you protect him from both of those points of view? And, and I feel like she captures that really well. Like she had, like, it's clear that her character has a vulnerability, but that she like, doesn't allow herself unless it's like overcomes her to expose, you know what I mean? That's my end, end rant. <laughs> uh, Jen, what's, what is your final entry? Your number one on, so our, on our table. So my final entry is desert power. Um, <laughs> we need it. We want it. Uh, we got to have it. Um, so, <laughs> like, uh, so, so I chose this, this phrase, not because it is both it's employed in the movie in a way that I at, simultaneously take a hundred percent seriously. And then also crack up every time it happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's that perfect intersection of like memeable but also like it's great it's cool um whenever anyone times any anytime especially oscar isaac says desert power it's exciting so like and but then it's also to me i'm choosing it as my number one because it's so emblematic as to what makes the story and, and in particular the story executed by villeneuve so compelling as a sci-fi story because it's like it really is and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw back. I can't. I don't think I've mentioned this on the show before, but many, many, many years ago, I went to Comic Con. I had the privilege to see a panel that had George R. R. Martin, Patrick Rothfuss. I'm gonna forget her name right now. The author who does Outlander, and then another guy who did a fantasy series that, if I said it, I'm sure you'd remember it, but I can't remember it in this moment. Am- Ambrose something. Um, I feel bad for not remembering it. But anyway, so the main thing that I learned from this panel is that they were all talking about how to be a successful science fiction or fantasy. I mean, they were all fantasy authors, but to be a, I would extend what they were saying to science fiction as well. To be a, a good world builder, you have to lean into what you are a nerd about. So one of them was like, mm-hmm. if you really love, like Tolkien was really into maps. So the Lord of the Rings has maps, right? Like Or like George R. R. Martin was like, I love food. Uh, and so... <laughs> No joke. He said this. Like he was like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's no secret I like eating. And so like my my scenes oftentimes I describe in great detail what people are eating. <laughs> and like um and then I think Patrick Rothfuss was like, I'm a huge nerd for like currencies not, and economy. Oh, no. okay. yeah. All right, all right. I knew every, that was coming. every mention um, of his name is just cutting me just a little deeper. Like get sorry. the damn book <laughs> But but like my point is that all these like big heavy hitter authors were sort of like find the thing that you can go into like an absurd amount of detail about. And I feel like in Dune, there are many things that do that, but the ecology of it, of the desert and how that informs everything about the way this world works down to like the, the death rituals of the Fremen, right? Like all the stuff about we water is so pre like, and it makes sense, right. To be like, Oh, on this extreme desert planet, there would be a culture that would form around, water and think about water in a completely different way than we do and that that not only that but that is part of what paul has to learn and what what is going to ultimately cause him to create this alliance and really change change everything right um and so it it is at once like this very granular world building thing but at the same time is like the story everything in the story hinges on it and I, you know, I, I just want to to add to that one of the critiques of the movie uh, from people who were just sort of going into the movie and did engage with it and didn't find it boring was like, this is kind of like another white savior narrative of like, you know, the the outsider comes and, and joins with the native people. Uh, and 
the the contrast of the you know, Atreides family and the Harkonnens as sort of stand-ins for European powers, and mm-hmm. then the the desert people being more the the people of uh, Arabic lands uh, is even more clear. I I do believe in the in the book the 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 Fremen are talk a lot about waging jihad, which was a smart edit for the movie to not include that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, like, you know, there, 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 there is a map there, you know, it's mapped on about like, you know, people going out there. And th- I think there's enough in this, uh, in the first movie that we, that we've seen um, to, to indicate that uh, w- though I understand why folks that are just coming in without having looked at the books um, wouldn't necessarily like think it was enough, but you know, uh, Paul's character is like, Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Like maybe this is a bad idea. Uh, I, I have visions, and the visions don't necessarily end well. Uh, and so I, I, I do, I do think for anyone who is um, an hour and a half ish into uh, listening to us talk about it, that is like, but what about the white savior problem? I, I think that's something that's going to be addressed over the course of the next movie or two. Again, there's hopefully there'll be a third one uh, adapting Dune Messiah. Uh, and uh, you know, if there is a trilogy, I think it's going to be pretty clear in the end that um, you know this this isn't about like thank God the Atreides showed up and did and did only good things. Yeah, no, I hear that, and I feel like the original source material does have a complicated relationship with imperialism, and it's like not totally mm-hmm. clear how much of it's it is espousing versus subverting. Um, but I will say that like if you compare. And again, this goes back to the idea of desert power and why why the Duke says desert power, because his whole thing is like, we are not going to go to this planet and control it and try to impose our worldview on it. Right. That's what the Harkonnens did. And that's why we open with Zendaya telling the story about what the Harkonnens did, because that's the wrong thing to do. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. According at least according to the movie, like, you know, it's pulling that from the book. Right. And. And, you know, instead, the Atreides, House Atreides is going to sort of work with and respect the Fremen and like, you know, you know, do what they do, learn their ways. And yes, there is a way in which that has that kind of like going native and like dances with wolves avatar sort of like, eh, like that's kind of eh, like uh, we're not sure about this. Um, Is it really good? I don't know. Uh, It does have a little bit of that still, but like. To me, I feel like the contrast between the Harkonnens and the Atreides, it's like a rel- like the relative thing there is enough for me to sort of like hang on to. I don't know. Greg, what do you think? Uh, I Actually, in my head, I was just thinking about how the production design makes the Harkonnens all monstrous in some way. And that also kind of rings true to lord of the rings for me right like lord of the rings it's like everybody good is pretty uh even the dwarves they're pretty in their own way uh and everybody bad is is monstrous um and so uh honestly at that moment i was just kind of thinking about like yeah i think i think it is complicated right and i want to acknowledge that a lot of our art is flawed and we sit in privileged positions that you know can (laughs) ignore some of these things that other people can't ignore but I also want art that tries uh, and that sometimes means art can't fully get the right message or all the way across. But I would much rather have Dune grapple with the idea of the white savior narrative and of ecology and of uh, colonialism and all these things. And, you know, and, and I actually mean that in terms of Frank Herbert and then in adapting it 
try to change that and modernize it in important ways. And I think all of that to me is what mythology is supposed to do, right? Mythology is supposed to talk to your current moment. And I think um, we are maybe kind of, if people like this episode, we're maybe thinking about someday thinking about an episode of why Dune is uh, kind of a different kind of franchise once we've seen the two, the second part, and we can kind of piece this all together and do some comparison work. Um, so I won't uh, spoil the hypothetical episode a month from now, but I, I do think that some of these other franchises, they don't try, right? And I would much rather have a movie try and yeah. fail or come up a little short than not engage with the the real stuff. And um, I also appreciate that some people are like, no, pew pew escapism is what I come to this genre for. But that to me is is a difference uh, between a lot of these kinds of franchises. So um, I'm I'm signing up. I I can't wait. Um, I my I I I only ever read the first book. My understanding was read the second one and then forget the rest exist. Um, and I understand that the mythology gets particularly tough, but really challenges. There's, there's a reason why the second book is called Dune Messiah, right? Like right. That, that, that says it all. <laughs> and I don't need to ramble anymore. <laughs> all right. Are we ready to end with an Oscars watch or Oscars and, and watch meaning our watch has never, never ended. Um, since the last one. <laughs> yeah. Came one out. of my oh. eyes has been on it the whole time. I don't, I thought that was what we do. <laughs> oh, but oh, Okay. So let's start with Dune part one at the Oscars, and then we can move to potential of Dune part two at the Oscars. So this was nominated for Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, Original Score, Costume, Sound, Editing, Makeup and Hairstyling, Cinematography. It's a pretty good haul. Uh, and also one- pr- Production Design and Visual Effects, which oh, is I didn't on scroll the next down. page. Yeah, Sorry. That's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So it's even more than I thought. Uh, and it won six of those score, sound, editing, cinematography, production design, visual effects. It had all the makings of a best picture winner. Uh, now it, that I'm looking it, at this. It list. was the biggest winner of the night in terms of number of awards, even though you may not feel that way if you watched it, because this was the year when I think five of those awards were given before the ceremony started. Before the oh, that's televised right. ceremony yeah. started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Dune, I think Dune had four wins before the monologue. Boo, Oscars. Um, get to so see before that. we get do, too far, I do think we should just um, finally reveal to our audience that the Oscar uh, bumper is actually a Hans Zimmer composition, and he gave that to you personally uh, a- after he won the Academy Award. Yeah. Uh, he, he actually invented a new instrument for yeah. it. Uh, that was he carved an, uh, an instrument out of his Oscar and plays the Johnsy right. little theme, and somehow um, in, it made it so that I can never play it correctly. Uh, that <laughs> must be built into the melody um except so, this time. uh yeah so in everything you just broke down what i hear and see in the document is this lane that has become like a lane which is you have a prestigious movie 
that does things and we can reward it. Um, I always think of this in visual effects. As soon as there's something that's not a superhero, it's like that's going to win because they really like value the non-blockbusters that do visual effects. And I think that speaks to the Academy voting body. Um, side note, the new best picture goes through the details of Academy voting in like granular detail. Everybody should listen to it if you're an Oscar nerd because it was really helpful to understand. Oh, you mean the, the big picture? The big picture, yes. I don't know what I just said. I think you uh, said best picture. It's fine. Oh, big picture. The big picture they have on the guy who put ranked choice voting in place at the Academy, and mm-hmm. he walks through exactly how it works. I was just listening to the Super Bowl episode with you two, and PT was like, no, Jen, it works this way. It works that way. And it is very confusing, right? But but he lays it out really nicely. Um But I think if we think about it, the larger Academy, even if visual effects artists may really appreciate something that's a blockbuster, I think the larger Academy looks still for Academy type movies. And that's what this lane is. I thought Poor Things was going to be in this lane this year, current 2023. And it seems like that hasn't quite happened. Um, There was also a time when Barbie could be in this lane um, and yet doesn't seem to be quite happening. So I, I see that lane here, but I just want to then underscore what you just said. It was like, but where are the wins at the top of that mm-hmm. stack, right? Because um, the fact that there's no acting nominees listed, I think, means spectacle won out because we all just walked through how so many of those would be deserved, um, but they're not there. So um, those are what's on my mind looking at these results. It's also weird because... You know, it it there is no acting. There's only two above the line nominations, but it felt like oh, it's it's possible that maybe it'll just win those two, and then be you know the uh, everything everywhere or what it seems like Oppenheimer will be or the Slumdog Millionaire of uh, of the year. Um, but uh, why well, it's three? Wait, well, because because Denis wasn't nominated, Denis Villeneuve. Right? I was yeah, yeah. I was going to be no, like okay. Well, that's a whole thing. So the maybe, maybe that. Maybe even then people were like, oh, right. Well, maybe this won't happen. But the two above the line nominations that it got, it lost to Coda, which only won, which only got three nominations, but ended up winning all three of them. So, you know, what? I don't know if, you know, like there was, there's another version of history where it becomes Dune versus Power of the Dog. And, you know, Jane Campion can still win directing, but Dune takes adapted screenplay wow. and, and best picture. Um but yeah, I mean, maybe it's that it was, it's just too too big of a blockbuster. And then I, I do think there is some degree where folks say, well, this is, you know, this is only part one. When Jen, when you were talking about the part one discourse, I was remembering the first time opening night when I went to go see The Fellowship of the Ring. I remember someone very loudly complaining in the theater when it was over being like, what, what, like what happens? Like, <laughs> like they didn't know, they didn't understand this was going to be a three part story. So um, you know, I, I, I do, I wonder if what's going to happen now, which is kind of strange because it's coming out March 1st and it'll be more than a year, uh, until the next Academy Awards, presumably if they're not going to announce if there's going to be a Dune Messiah movie until they see if it can actually, we could be like, this is it. Mm. This is the end of the story. This was Dune. Yeah. Like we did it everybody. And then they'll like campaign on that and then maybe be like Dune three. Colin Dune Messiah. 
Right. Because I think so you're thinking they're going to strategically withhold that information so that people don't think, oh, we'll just give it to them on the last one. If they're people yes. if they're like they're trying to trick people into thinking this is the last one. So it'll get the Oscars. Yeah. Right. I guess, though, I feel like there's enough rumors. There's enough water cooler talk about maybe a third movie that people might just assume that anyway. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I don't think yeah, I have to announce part. it for people to be thinking it. Um, to being like, oh, isn't this a trilogy? Like, oh, we'll just we'll just do it. Return of the King. Well, we did for Return of the King. Uh, no, no big deal. But at the same time, thinking ahead, what is it going to have that much competition next year? That's, That's a great the thing, question, right? Like, is the vacuum is the strike induced vacuum that we are predicting? Hopefully, is not super true, but like we're we're kind of predicting. Is that going to make it a more open? Is that going to give give Dune two more opportunities? It just it just means another coda will emerge to mm. like at the end to be like hello, <laughs> thank you, and take the trophy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the real. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about next year's Oscar race, uh, even us. Uh, and I think the space of like the independent studios that had the the interim agreements they can put together some really good character pieces for some really good acting nominees. So I think that might be the biggest risk of, of who it's going to compete with in terms of big spectacle. All that I can imagine is wicked, right? Um, but wicked also has the part one problem and, um, initial reaction doesn't seem like it's blowing. Yeah, nobody's excited away. about that movie except so, for me and Colby um, from the Colby cast. <laughs> But I, I do think, um, I like this is Furiosa erasure for the for the record. Oh, well, that uh, is coming not, out. But that, I'm but similarly, noted. I think people also had kind of a cooler reaction to that trailer than I thought. We were very excited sure. on our show. I remember. Yeah. And then I went and listened to everyone else, and they were like, eh, "Did that even the look trailer, good?" The trailer looked a lot better when I saw it in a theater than when I saw oh. it on a computer. Which right, um, Maybe yeah. that's just me talking myself into it, but like. No. I watched it on the computer and I was like, this does look like the CGI is not finished. It, it was very Ang Lee Hulk Super Bowl trailer. Um, but <laughs> I, it was the same, the same trailer in the theater it just looked like played perfectly. Yeah. I think we, uh, to maybe spoiler, uh, spoil the discussion of Maestro, which maybe happened before this or after this. I um, already came out. Uh, oh, okay. It came out before this. Uh, yes. It's, it's, uh, I, time is a flat circle. Um, so, uh, we said maybe they should have pushed Maestro cause it's such a void of a year, um, uh, here. Um, but I, I do think Dune should get the chance to be the big, the big, uh, the big beast in the room, the Oppenheimer of next year. And it, it makes me a little nervous back to the, the point that was made that it is March. I guess everything everywhere proved that it can last, but, you know, I, I do think it's going to be hard to keep it all because because all the like it's shiny and new is not going to be on this because we've already seen part one. I think it's going to be really hard to keep enthusiasm up for it, even though it's a kind of empty year ahead of it. Why do you think they didn't save this for summer blockbuster? I think they wanted to own the spring. Oh, OK. Well, it's also weird because I mean, the, this is coming out now. This isn't in. Uh, tussling with Oppenheimer this like you know in the next few weeks because of the strike like this was mm -hmm, supposed mm -hmm. to come out in November 
much to uh, our constant lamentations that we haven't seen it yet. Uh, so I feel like they just sort of pushed it back. I don't want to say for financial reasons, but the sort of like, we're ready for, we're ready for the income that this should generate. Uh, but now we had to push it back. Let's push it back to when we are the first time we feel like, okay, we, we have an opening in the calendar for it. And I don't know if they were thinking about the possible, uh, awards ramifications of it because, my guess is to the studio, this is more the previous movie made four hundred over four hundred million dollars in a pandemic. Uh, let's get this out uh, and and make money yeah. and 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 get this budget back and pick up sure. the the studio. Because that, they, that makes they did bo- they did bump the Bong Joon Ho movie, right? Yes, yeah. because that and was Mickey also 17? supposed to be yeah. So that was supposed to be this month as well, and that's also Warner Brothers. So that one they're mm-hmm. clearly making awards play for to put that somewhere into the later part of the year right maybe there were people who were sort of questioning because i think it's supposed to be january 2025 people were like why are you dumping that movie Uh like the people were like is it a dumpuary movie because that like you know there's some suspicion apparently the the studio had said they want to time it for a lunar new year next year like a release because they think Hmm. it's I, i assume that's because of global box office concerns um or something but yeah i don't know I think it was on the big picture, a different episode of the big picture that had some speculation that maybe like Snowpiercer, it's a enough of an anti-capitalist story that the people in the studio oh. are like, we don't like that. We don't get this. This isn't going to like connect with people. Uh, and so, cause yeah, there was Sean Fennessy was in a deep crisis about like, what does like, this oh mean? Oh my God. Like, is yeah, this bad? Like, does yeah. this mean the movie's bad? Or do, the, do they not get it and they think it's bad? So they're going to push yeah, it. It's a masterpiece. Outside yeah. of more contention. <laughs> and actually, it's going to be great, but just they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. They don't understand it. But yeah, yeah sure. to, to, to Greg's point, it's it may be cleared off the awards discussion. It's certainly cleared out of the way in terms of you know what's coming in at the box office. I mean, yeah. what's the next big movie? When is Deadpool? Deadpool Wolverine's not till like May, right? This May, yeah. No, oh, that later. That's July. Isn't it July? I, I oh. thought that bumped its date. Um, oh, that's very possible. I mean, the only other thing in its a completely different lane, I think, is Kung Fu Panda 4, which um, mm. kids love their Jack Black. Uh, that's going into the Mario slot. But mm, okay. um, it, yeah, uh, Ghostbusters. Is, do we call no. that a big movie at this point? I think that's the yeah. end of March. We are every, we're, most of the things we're naming are ma- more mainstream films that would not necessarily be awards contenders anyway. Yeah. Then that's the crazy magical thing about Dune is that it seems to intersect. It's both a blockbuster and a, a prestige film. And yeah. like it has enough to satisfy both of those audiences. Uh, do we think, here's the big question I'm wondering about. Do we think because Denis Villeneuve famously did not make it into Best Director the year that Dune Part 1 came out? And that was a big thing because people were like, you nominated for all these other categories. Who do you think orchestrated all of those things, (laughs) right? This movie directed itself, apparently. I remember hearing that from lots of critics. And so Mm -hmm. can will the Oscars remember that and recognize that and try to make up for it potentially? Like is, is Denis in? I mean, I, I think they'll remember it. I think it will be a point of discussion. I don't think he's in, like, for sure, for the mm-hmm. reasons we were just saying. <clears throat> but I think that he'll have a leg up. There will be a, well, he's overdue. You know, in, in a similar way where I think he did get nominated for it. But, like, you know, he didn't win with Arrival. And I think, you know, time has been very kind to that movie. People really like it. 
yeah the blade runner 2049 also like wasn't a success financially when it came out but has only i think grown in people's estimations i think you know there, there's a nolan-esque narrative of oh, this mm. guy's been overlooked and he's just been making these movies that just keep being successful so um i could see that i will just note i'm looking at the list uh of who was nominated for director uh in the dune year it's probably uh, Ryosuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car who took his spot. And that's an incredible nomination because I absolutely love that movie. So, like, I would kick out Kenneth Branagh for Belfast or or even PTA for Licorice Pizza, which is, like, a movie I think that's only fine. Um, so I would kick those people out, but I don't think the Academy would. Um, so I'm not, like, super – like, it, it's hard to be, like – the person who's most likely to be, get replaced is probably my favorite nomination of the year. That, yeah, sometimes you, you you live by the sword, you die by the sword, I guess. So, of, of guess, funny you should mention this. Guess who just recently interviewed Villeneuve? Is it Ryosuke Hamaguchi? No, it was Christopher Nolan. Yeah, oh. Nolan. Yeah. <laughs> that makes they, a lot more sense. They feel like they're campaigning together. But for yeah. different years, um, and yep. and they're they're helping each other out. I I I went to Tenet the other night, and there was a big splashy Dune trailer, like like build outside the building, like and it has a preview of Dune attached to it, and um and it felt like you know Nolan was out there saying Dune Two is his Empire Strikes Back, which I think Nolan means as a compliment, but who can tell with Nolan if. Like he thinks Empire Strikes yeah. Back is terrible in some if, way. If, if he had said it was his Fast Five, we would have known it was a compliment. <laughs> so, um, but I do feel like uh, I don't. I don't know if they have a personal relationship that's longstanding or something. But they have both been as forcefully pushing their movies. So it is crazy that they are going to be an Oscar year apart as it, as it comes down. I love the idea that Christopher Nolan has best director so locked down that he's campaigning other movies that haven't <laughs> right. That he's yet. like, come on, get like in on this. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah use my like, shine. What? <clears throat> yeah, like, what, what, what am I going to do? What else can I get? Oppenheimer? Like, it already has so much. Like, come to me, come to me, everybody. <laughs> what a amazing what a mensch. So the thing I'll end with is because the biggest complaint I heard about Dune Part One was that it was half a movie. I've been complaining about this obliquely the entire time and now i'm actually going to take it on head on and i heard so many critics say they would give a glowing review of doing part one and they'd be like but you know i can't really review this film in full until i see part two what is this what do we make of this Ugh. if it was called <laughs> dune and dune child of the desert you wouldn't hear that at all right like and and this this goes back to empire strikes back speaking of right like that critics like oh um i just have no place for this um the same people who complain about it are like i watch prestige tv where it's as complicated as complex and you'll watch a 10 episode season and not get that kind of fulfillment until two years later oops there's a strike four years later or whatever and like People just need to get over this. And I, I, I'm sure we can rewind the tape. I'm sure I complain the same thing about Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, formerly part one. It's like, I, I think these things can acknowledge a relationship between them and have a larger story, but also just be a great time to sit and watch a movie. So go ahead and judge it. And um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I heard it the most on Spider Verse in the last year, right? Like, mm, 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 have a movie. Yeah, I feel like movie. this is where it started. Dune Part One is what started the Part One, Part Two. The discourse. only clarification I will make, and I'm ninety nine percent sure I'm sure on this, that when the critics saw Dune, it did not have the Part One title card. I think it was after those initial reactions that Warner Brothers was like, "Oh crap, I better put it on." So, so like I think PT, you said you didn't realize till you sat down that it was Part One, and I think that happened because of this. I had heard somebody express that they had been not been told and that it is actually part one so i i think warner brothers acted very quick on those i'll say mm-hmm. prints but whatever goes to movie theaters now <laughs> yeah uh, like digital very, files. very large uh quick time <laughs> files uh i, I think uh, yeah i mean i i do remember hearing similar to how across the spider-verse was initially announced as across the spider-verse part one that it was like they're adapting dune he's not going to do the whole book but there is like, because it was published in two parts, there's a, a clear end to part one. But I believe that the, the end of the movie is a little bit, and, and Jen, you can speak to this because you tried to gauge where things went. It's it either, the movie ends either a little before or a little after that break in the book. Uh, and so I remember being kind of like, oh, okay. Like, I guess that's, that's where we're ending. Um, but I, I can't recall exactly where it is. But I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know it was going to be billed as part one. Um, but that makes sense that it was a reaction to the initial sort of response. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fully with Greg. I get it. Sometimes it, it can go poorly. It can be like, well, this isn't a satisfactory story because it was all set up. It only is like the first act and it, and it didn't like it didn't function on its own. But like it's absolutely fine for like an episodic type movie to like function as a movie and and be absolutely like uh, spellbinding and wonderful and enjoyable. Um, even though it's clear that there's, there's more story to come. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I think, uh, I, I also think, uh, given, uh, how much I love a movie such as the last Jedi and how much I don't like the movie that came right after it. Uh, I, it's okay to be like, you know, you can just watch something and then like motion to sever, <laughs> just turn. like pretend, <laughs> well, just sort of like watch it. And in your mind to be like, so if you love, if you watch this and you know, a critic or, 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 or a real person watch this and said, uh, you know, Dune, this Dune, Dune part one was great. Um, and then Dune part two comes out and you're like, Oh no, I hate it. Like this wasn't good. You can go back and still watch the first one and just sever the part you don't like. And and I don't know why I don't know why people are so I don't know against that idea because yeah. it's a part one. I mean, you could also say that there is an arc of the story in Doom Part One that does come to completion, right? Like, like there it's and it is more like the downbeat leading into Empire Strikes Back. You know what I mean? Like it's like the house has fallen. But Paul and Jessica, Lady Jessica escape, right? And like that, and they find a new place. And yes, like literally Zendaya is like, this is only the beginning or whatever, right? Um, <laughs> but there are plenty of stories that come to a conclusion with a character starting a new life. You know what I mean? Like it's not, that's not crazy yeah. to end something like that. Um, it's only because we know there's more and that the expectation is that there's more and that we need to see more that like people feel that way i guess i don't know but also like yes to go back to the original example of lord of the rings like sometimes stories have multiple parts let's just get over it um uh but yeah and i and i do feel like you i i feel like you can't judge a part one on its own without having to wait for part two i i that that just has never made sense to me but 
And Dune in particular, if, if there's someone that's just like, well, I don't know why, you know, in the same way people will watch like the, what Greg was mentioning, the, the 10 episode TV series, it's really more of a movie than a season of TV. And then you watch it and you're like, yeah, it was a movie. It should have been two hours. And you said you made me watch 10. That, you know, this isn't one where it's like, well, I watched two and a half hours. I only got half the story. They should have told the whole story in, in two hours because we have that version. It's the David Lynch version. It's not very good. Uh, it, ne- it needed more space. So, you know, be, be thankful that we have this, uh, this, you know, one that has more space, one that has a... Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, is able to interpret the story better because of it. It didn't need more spice, but it didn't need the more space. Um, hey. So, <laughs> yes, and I like, but but I think what's interesting is that so many of the review early reviews I've seen have been like, and this is I think where we'll conclude. Like, this movie is everything you love about the first one, but more and bigger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like bigger yep. with more worms. That's what I said earlier. Like, I think that's that's generally the, all the reviews are can be boiled down to that. Um, and so that's exciting. And it really seems to be coming out of the gate swinging because it's like 4.5 on Letterboxd right now. It's the highest rated film of all time on IMDb, apparently. Um, not Rotten Tomatoes. I got that confused. But like, so I don't know. I, yeah, I didn't know IMDb had movie rankings, I guess, or like ratings like Rotten Tomatoes did. Mm-hmm. I missed that. Um, well, I think it's just the scores. That pe- it's like Letterboxd. It's like people can give a score uh, out of 10. I see. And then... The, the cumulative average is is the IMDb score. It's, yeah, I feel like it, it for a long time it would sort of ju- uh, be a fight between the Shawshank Redemption and the Godfather. In case you were curious about the demographics of the people filling out IMDb ratings, uh, <laughs> and then it's sort of become like you know the new release blockbusters usually get like some shine up there um, for this. The one thing I'll say like to to try to temper my own uh, slightly out of control expectations is the the so a glut of reviews. There are the, the critic embargo was lifted, uh, and critics have been uh, you know pretty positive about it. Um, but there also was like fan screenings. So presumably the the general public who saw that are people who identify as fans of the franchise who like were paying attention to wherever that was announced and jumped on it to go to like what I think it was Sunday or Monday they had like a, like a preview screening. That was aimed towards fans, so it's likely that those scores, you know, that those are the kind oh, of, you know, yeah. like, and I, you know, those we, who are the, those would be the right, they would like, be the highest like, score right? But like, those things have also really blown up in, in 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 studios' faces, and I've gotten like, eh, I don't know, uh, when when it's response. So like, it's great, it's great that like, you know, like the first movie, there's like nerd nerd fanboys are happy. Critics are are pretty happy when when you know those those different quadrants are being served. Um, that seems to be a potential good indication that we're on we're on we're in good hands. Yeah. Um, all right, let's ride the sandworm out of here, Greg. Where can we find your great work on the internet? Uh, I don't know at this point. Um, <laughs> no, uh... Sorry, we've kept you up so late. Uh, let's see. Uh, people can find uh, my uh, writings on movies and other topics at ioncanon.com. That's E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. And um, I generally am on social media, including Letterboxd uh, with that handle. Um, so please seek me out. Come tell me why my opinions are wrong or right. PT, where can folks uh, follow the show? If they have made it this far, they really should be listening to us more often. 
Uh, strong agree. As mentioned earlier, they should uh, uh, subscribe wherever they're listening right now to their podcasts, wh- whatever Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, if they're listening on YouTube, welcome. Uh, if they're listening on your Substack, subscribe to to Jen Substack, the longtake.substack.com. They should follow us on Instagram and Threads at the Long Take Review. Uh, they should be uh, checking the tag on uh, Letterbox LTR Pod. That's on any of our reviews. I think you can also maybe search for it uh, and and pull up the recent reviews that we have all been uh, adding up there. Uh, and you can follow me personally on Letterboxd. Uh, PT McNiff, PT M-C-N-I-F-F would be great to, to hear from you. And you can find me on Instagram and threads at Subchakchai, S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K-C-H-A-I. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Qui-Gon Jen. Insert Hans Zimmer screen here. We're out. <laughs>